Hello and welcome to episode number 51 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast on May 11th, 2009. On this episode of the Agro Innovations Podcast, we are with Frank Van Shelbrook of the Center for Information on Low External Input and Sustainable Agriculture. Frank Van Shelbrook, welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. Now tell us about the Center for Information on Low External Input and Sustainable Agriculture, known as LISA. Uh, what is your center and what do you do? So um, um, the, uh, this uh, organization I'm working for, uh, ILEA, it's um, a secretariat of a global network of magazines. Uh, we... Uh, we produce the global magazine, but then there's a magazine, magazines in uh, Brazil, in Peru, uh, in uh, China, in India, and in uh, Indonesia, and two in Africa, that produce a regional magazine uh, with half the same articles, half local articles. We, um, we, we, our, our work is to coordinate all that work among the different magazines. So, do you guys do a lot of translation work, or exactly how does that play out? Well, most of our work is actually uh, sourcing uh, articles from uh, all over the globe. Uh, and we only source articles of people who are actually with their hands working on small-scale agriculture. It could be farmers, uh, but often it is people like uh, NGOs, government extension agents, uh, uh, INGOs, but also uh, uh, people who do research, applied research, um, even people who work in education institutes, uh, everybody who who tries to do something in practice uh, to support small-scale agriculture. Now, who is it that reads and has access to your magazine? Uh, the magazine is uh, sent out to about, I mean, the, the the, the, together, all the magazines are sent out to about 50,000 subscribers all over the world. Now, each magazine gets read by about five people. So, all in all, the magazine has about 250,000 readers. And um, they are uh, mostly people like extension agents or people in the, in the district extension offices uh, um, or... Uh, there's also some researchers and there are also quite a few subscribers who work in um, in, the, in education institutes the the magazine is used a lot uh, for uh, for by students who want to do thesis about uh, one or the other thing okay so how can someone get their hands on this magazine is it through subscription or do they buy it issue by issue or is it strictly online how, how will they get their hands on it well it's both online and uh, uh, people in the south they uh, you have to go to the website www.laisa.info um, and there you can ask for a subscription you can also send us a, 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 a card or something so that is possible 
uh, it is so far it is free for people in the south people in uh, uh, developed in the developed world they will have to pay uh, a fee obviously um, so that's actually pretty easy can you tell us what that fee is so people who are interested have a sense of uh, what it what it would cost them to get the to get the magazine um, I'm not so sure but it should be around forty dollars a year and uh, uh, um, I think that that would be the fee for people in the north yeah and let me say that that's a pretty reasonable fee uh, I'm sure it's, it, that might not be the exact number but I'm sure it's within that range and that's a pretty reasonable fee so for people who are interested in acquiring the magazine think that uh, you are supporting a good cause and you're helping other people who might not have the resources get their hands on the magazine uh, have access to all the information that the magazine has. Yes, yeah, exactly. The idea is that um, uh, particularly people in uh, rural uh, regions in the world that they they get very easy access to all sorts of experiences from from everywhere in the world. It's it's uh, the the objective is that people who are wor working in practice write about all the uh, opportunities and problems they they find when they try to carry out something let's say they carry out they, they try to do a, another method of composting or they want to do something about uh, I saw something about pot irrigation uh, or they want to set up a farmers organization or uh, they want to do advocacy that all that kind of uh, work whenever it's practical work with practical problems practical opportunities uh, uh, that, that kind of stories we publish. Well, and I should also say that that's very much in line with the philosophy of the Agro-Innovations podcast. I try to interview people that provide uh, practical solutions to a lot of these problems that you're mentioning. And this is, although I've been aware of your organization, this is the first that I'm hearing in more detail about the magazine itself. Um, so I'm definitely going to get my hands on it as soon as I can. And I encourage Wonderful. others others to do the same. Very good. That we really like uh, like uh, uh, to to l link up with people like you. And also, of course, um, I think this is a great format for for your organization to explain to people out there what it is exactly that you do, and you know, encourage people to to promote that promote that and participate that in whatever way they can, uh, particularly you know, supporting the magazine. Absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, um, um, yeah. No, uh, I just uh, agree with you. It's it's uh, it's very important to to uh, to get to know uh, what's actually happening in practice, and then my own hobby. I mean, uh, one one thing is that people, let's say, extension agents who work with farmers and then they have to travel so much to get to this farmers community and uh, and uh, discuss all sorts of issues uh, and try to get something going for example try to get farmers uh, produce a bit for the market or uh, 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 and then all the difficulties that farmers face and then to get that out to get it back to the people who are actually working on that um, yeah, that's uh, very important. But at the same time, I have worked uh, for uh, quite a few years in different ministries in Asia. That was in Nepal and in Bhutan. 
uh, there's also people inside ministries or inside UN organizations who try to work for small-scale farmers. For them, it's also very difficult to uh, get uh, to get things done. Uh, you very often when you when you have that people-oriented focus, you feel very much like a, a, a lone fighter because um, uh, most uh, most of the working culture in that kind of organization is is kind of bureaucratic. Uh, it it doesn't always is not always in support of uh, of the good work of uh, of the of the one and a half billion or so small-scale farmers that this world uh, that live in this world. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I do have some questions that address that issue a little bit. But first, I did want to ask you, what do you, I mean? The name of your center is the Center for Information on Low External Input in Sustainable Agriculture. What do yes. low external inputs have to do with sustainable agriculture? Yeah. Well, the name uh, uh, the name stems from 25 years ago when uh, uh, when the, the mainstream thinking in agriculture was uh, the green revolution thinking that with uh, loads of fossil fuels and uh, uh, pesticides uh, we would boost agriculture production. That has worked to some extent. Uh, there have uh, the green revolution has uh, increased production, but with lots and lots of uh, side effects um, and so in reaction to that uh, there has been a group of people who at that time coined another way of agriculture like how shall we call it and they called it low external input and sustainable agriculture if we today would uh, we would uh, make a concept we would probably call something different like I would think something like people-centered agriculture or uh, locally rooted agriculture. We are actually at this moment discussing uh, the name of the concept, even if the basic ideas, we, uh, we still believe in it. Moreover, if you think about all the agriculture inputs, uh, they are uh, all made with loads of uh, fossil fuels. If I remember well, uh, if you uh, uh, plant one hectare of maize, be it in Europe or in the United States, every hectare, uh, every year costs about a thousand liters of oil. And we all know that fossil fuels are going to run out in the next uh, few decades. So definitely for the long run, we have to think of a different type of agriculture that is not dependent on fossil fuels. So... Um, we have to have our alternatives ready, and that's uh, for me personally a, a big in, uh, a, a big drive. Like, how are we going to make a kind of agriculture for the post-fossil fuel era? And of course, people have been thinking about this concept for a while. I mean, one of the first things that comes to my mind is Rudolf Steiner, who Oops. you know, yeah. who described inputs in agricultural systems as a sign of sickness and disease in the agricultural system. Uh, so, you know, people have been uh, proposing alternatives for a long time. Now, let me say that your, uh, your website says the following. Success stories from small-scale farmers are often hard to find. They do exist, and there's much to be learned from them. They can improve productivity, generate income, and empower farmers. Lisa Network 
finds and publishes these stories and exchanges knowledge and information on sustainable smallholder farming around the world, uh, as we've talked about. Having had so much experience with and exposure to success, success stories in small-scale um, agriculture, what are some of the recurring themes? What characteristics do these successful farmers share? Um, yeah, that's a that's a very good question. Uh, we get uh, we get of course uh, loads and loads of stories uh, over our table. Moreover, obviously we visit uh, uh, often uh, innovative farmers. Um, well, the uh, the characteristics of that kind of uh, farmers is uh, definitely they know their own environment, their own situation, they know it very well. They know what's possible in their area, they know what grows there, what not doesn't grow, when the rain falls uh, uh, and when it might not fall and uh, they know the kinds of soil, they, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely, obviously when you live somewhere for, uh, and work in the, on the land your whole life you, you know a lot, but that's uh, not enough. Um, the successful farmers, they are uh, farmers who, who, who pick an idea from outside and then start working with it, with it locally and completely adjust it uh, to the local situation. Uh, that could be a, a technology. Uh, I have a background of integrated pest management and uh, we, we did some uh, we did some uh, research with farmers in Bhutan. And then we could uh, we could double mandarin yields because there was a certain fruit fly that uh, that that uh, took these mandarins. People so far thought it was uh, it was the weather, but actually, uh, with knowledge from outside, we could show that this was a, a fruit fly that laid eggs in the fruits, and then that fly you you could you could lure it with some some lure that that indeed came from outside but it's very small quantities and then you can double the yields that kind of uh, uh, that kind of experiments uh, farmers do with it could, can also be a way of organization for example uh, uh, yeah if you want to market a certain product as a lone farmer it's always difficult then you you make an organization you do a farms cooperative or, or uh, something um, that is actually hard work. I mean, every uh, culture has its own way of uh, uh, of making an organization and of sharing uh, the benefits and, uh, and 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 of governing such an organization. So you have to uh, really ado adopt the idea of cooperative uh, to the local situation. Um, so. Uh, uh, um, uh, an idea from outside that, that comes to a particular place and then that, that you, you use the best of both. That is absolutely uh, uh, crucial to uh, what, what farmers can do. Now this organization, I think that's also a third uh, characteristic. Uh, farmers alone, uh, they are um, it, it cannot do much. You always have to be in some sort of organization. If only to get your voice heard by local authorities or even national authorities. And moreover, um, farmers have real difficulties to innovate and to uh, make a difference, obviously, if, if hunger is uh, around the corner. If, uh, if you are not food secure, it's very difficult to experiment. Then you, 
then you uh, remain uh, obviously very conservative. What you did last year, that worked pretty well. You do it this year exactly the same because you don't want to take the risk not to have food. So uh, these are some of those uh, things that, far, that, that, that farmers must have. Otherwise, it's very unlikely something will change. Now, all these characteristics that you described... Um what do we have to do to encourage these characteristics in the difficult circumstances of the smallholder farmer? Well, the uh, uh, first obvious thing uh, is um, we have to exchange ideas. Uh, obviously, that's what, our, what the idea of uh, our magazine is, that so, uh, there's a story from... Uh, from Bolivia, somebody does something interesting with potatoes and then uh, some Himalayan uh, people read it and think, wow, yeah, that we could do that, we could try that out. Um, that is an obvious thing that, that we can do, it is possible and, and we are actually doing it um, and we can do it much better than it, go, than it works at present. Um, another important thing I feel is um, at, uh, much of the debate, uh, much of how people talk about agriculture, uh, talks uh, uh, the, it doesn't recognize uh, how, resp how how the, the the roles of small scale farming. Small scale farming is actually you are uh, you are a small farmer because your parents were a small scale farmer, or because there's nothing else to do. But it is it is not very often the first choice. Obviously, I don't know how that is in the States, but in Europe we have seen some movement of people who come from the cities and who went back to uh, rural areas, uh, often to do farming besides tourism and uh, uh, other businesses. But small-scale farming, it, it doesn't have a good name. And when you see uh, global politics, uh, the, global, the global debate, very often it is being said that uh, small-scale farmers should as soon as possible become uh, business people and, um, uh, and uh, maybe they should send their kids to, uh, to, the, to school and in the, in the end to cities. That is also what's happening uh, for, a, for a great deal. On the other hand, you should realize, and now I'm basing myself on some uh, research, that never in history there have been so many farmers as at this moment. There is, of course, an enormous amount of migration from farmer communities to cities. But still, there are more farmers than ever. Uh, we, we, uh, we work with the figure, if I remember well, it comes from uh, the World Bank of 1.6 billion farmers. Some people say 2.4. Depends how you measure, of course, what's a farmer, what is not a farmer. But there, there are enormous amounts of farmers, really, really loads of people, and uh, they can do. They are doing great work. Um, and then another thing is, uh, well, the, the whenever I visit Africa uh, and I talk to farmers, I always find that uh, people try a lot. But it doesn't pay off. Uh, I was in Ghana not so long ago where there were farmers who were trying to produce uh, soy for, uh, for the local city market. And that well, went all very well and they got some uh, returns. They did some loans, they got some returns. But then uh, what happened that the one, uh, a, a big load of soy came from Brazil and flooded the local market and then... Uh, uh, and and these people they uh, they couldn't 
couldn't sell their soy anymore or not at a proper price. And then uh, you have done lots of work, but it didn't pay off. And uh, and that, of course, pushes people back into uh, into a kind of uh, laid-back attitude that farming is not going to uh, make, make uh, things much better. So um, uh, you need a... Yeah. It, uh, I would say uh, we have to we have to uh, create enthusiasm about farming, and we have to make it uh, uh, respectable and, uh, and, uh, and and just a nice job. Yes, and as I listen to you talk, the the first thing that comes to my mind is that this is the story of the small scale innovative farmer. Everything that you're saying, you know, yeah, uh, the the characteristics of the innovative farmer, the willingness to experiment, the uh, intimate knowledge of the local environment, the fact that the deck seems chronically stacked against them. Um, yes. W- one of the stories on your blog page says, UN says investments in farming are needed to stave off world hunger. Now, the UN and the World Bank and USAID have been investing in commodity-based agriculture for at least 50 years. At what point do we give up on these dinosaur institutions and look for alternative ways to build sustainable agriculture? Um, especially within the context of the story of the small farmer, um, if, if so much investment has been put into agriculture and yet the, the small innovative farmer is continuing to struggle and struggle as you're describing it, uh, w- what to do in this case? And do, can we any longer put any credence in anything that these institutions say or should we just give up on them? <laughs> wow, yes, that's a, a challenging uh, question. Um, I think we shouldn't give up on them. Uh, I, I think these uh, institutions, they are important. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they are there to... We, in the end, we have to to do some governance, some true governance, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, these vast amounts of people who uh, who work on our earth for our food. Um, when I'm uh, in uh, in uh, in villages on the ground, and I've seen uh, many, many, and then some I've, I've lived for actually quite, uh, for many. I lived in some villages for five, seven years. So at that time, I knew the, the local situation very well. Um, I always find that there are there are difficulties for people to to become to become uh, productive farmers. Uh, for example, uh, an enormous issue in many places is um, <coughs> sorry, it's um, migration. Uh, people, uh, y- you think like you you go to a village and this farmer has been there, but then if you ask every farmer, every second uh, farmer farmers' parents, they come from somewhere else, maybe next village, but maybe also another country. And uh, uh, newcomers in a village, they often have no access to land. Then they, uh, 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 when you have no access to land, it's very difficult, of course, to build up a good farm. Uh, Another uh, feature that you see is that there's, uh, on the ground, there's uh, uh, female-headed households, and then in many countries, women have no rights to land. Uh, how do you expect uh, uh, that kind of uh, farmers to, to, to make a good farm? Uh, I see land use planning, it's always a problem, like then all of a sudden there's a road or they, they, they build a city <laughs> in, a, in an area 
uh, when cities expand, water is always a problem, and then there's market access, that's also a problem. But what I then find of these big institutions is that these are the, the what I always call the hot issues, the issues that farmers uh, really care about, where they uh, go to the local mayor and complain and try to uh, get their rights. And when it comes, for example, to um, land rights, there's tons of studies about it, and there's very little practice of actually addressing the problem, obviously because it's a very political problem. You have uh, all sorts of uh, feudal relations locally um, that, that uh, and, when, and when you discuss with, uh, let's say, Ministry of Agriculture, they're very happy to discuss how to uh, deliver uh, fertilizer to uh, local farmers, but they are very unhappy to discuss, okay, but how can we make sure that farmers, uh, uh, that they have access to land, and not only that, that they can know that they have the same land, plot of land for the next 20 years, so they can actually care for it and uh, invest in it. Um, so, uh, um, I would say that uh, that kind of institutions, they are, they are necessary, but they should focus very much on what are the actual problems that farmers face uh, when they try to build up a beautiful farm. But see, with, with, that, with your response, you're assuming that that's what their objective is. And if that had been their objective, then that's how they would have designed and implemented their projects over all these years. And it seems to me like there's plenty of evidence to indicate that it's quite the contrary. And so, I mean, I don't have an answer either to this question, obviously. But yeah. I'm, just, I'm just wondering, I mean, is, if that's not the objective of these institutions, can we ever expect them to change? Um, I guess that's, uh, <laughs> that is... Um it's a question of global governance. Uh, what what do we want? Uh, 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 I, I agree with you that at the present that's not the objective. Even if um, there's so much evidence that it's this kind of issues that hamper uh, small-scale farming, and uh, and uh, uh, but on the yeah on the other hand yeah well. Uh, we should explore this together, I, I suppose. I mean, there is something like Millennium Development Goals, and the goal number one is uh, uh, to have hunger by 2015. And uh, frankly speaking, the only way I can see that happen is to, to give rights to farmers to produce their own food. After all, 70% of the poor in this world are small scale, are small farmers, are small scale farmers, uh, and and of, and many of them w women headed households. So, uh, yeah, and they are not going to uh, be absorbed by cities or industries in the next ten years. It's it's not going to happen, and I I would like it to happen because uh, it's uh, 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 the thing they are best at is take care of the take care of their uh, of the land. Uh, so. Um, then, when it comes to food production, uh, small-scale agriculture seems to be, well, let's say, inefficient when it comes to economic returns. But when it comes to food production per hectare, per, per square meter, uh, it's, it's definitely superior to, uh, to large-scale um, plantations. Obviously, because there are so many more brains per square meter, uh, looking at uh, uh, what everything is, uh, everything that's possible. Uh, um, 
Yeah, I am. I'm not so sure. Well, I think that certainly the dialogue that you and I are having is part of that solution. Um, if small-scale agriculture looks inefficient from an economic perspective, I think that's actually easily rectified by the type of collaborative information-sharing model that you're talking about, one in which we support small farmers, in which we have an ethical perspective on agriculture uh, and, and towards the, the biological world as well. Um, we can solve actually all these problems. Sure, they're difficult. It doesn't make it any easier that um, many of the institutions that are designated to solve these problems are corrupt and or inefficient. I'd, I'd like to uh, add one more thing here. Um, I've worked uh, uh, here and there with the World Bank and FAO and uh, I have not worked in them. Um, but whenever I'm inside such institutions, same like in, uh, in uh, ministries, there are always individuals who see this point. And I think it's important uh, that uh, that that kind of individuals link up with people, uh, people like us, with farmers' organizations, with uh, 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 with with people with this agenda, in order to look. Okay, what can we do within an FAO? What can we do within the World Bank to get this point on the agenda? I I don't say I'm uh, that we should get rid of uh, the big industrial agriculture. I think that's not realistic and probably not desirable, but at least there should be space for this uh, uh, one and a half billion uh, farmers that, uh, that, that try to, uh, uh, to do farming uh, uh, based on, on the local reality and not based on external technology alone. So uh, uh, I, would, I would say uh, uh, let's, let's find our allies and let's think how we can, how we can make this agenda uh, uh, also work within uh, UN organizations and within uh, uh, USAID and, and, uh, and uh, uh, our own, we have our own uh, development, uh, Ministry of Development of course. So I, I am, I'm, I'm not so pessimistic about these organizations. Uh, I think there are opportunities there. I would second that motion and say that uh, that seems like a, a very practical and pragmatic approach to, to ally with people that are already in these organizations. And I thank you for reminding us that these organizations are actually composed of people. And, you know, people are, are different uh, through across the board. And people who are in these organizations and understand how they work and understand how to, you know, make them move in a certain direction are certainly welcome allies in this struggle. Absolutely. That is the end of the first part of my interview with Frank Van Shelbrook of the Center for Information on Low Input and Sustainable Agriculture. And the second part of that interview will be published next week, uh, most likely on Monday of next week. So look out for that. And that will that second part of the interview is a little bit shorter than this first part. So I will probably be sharing some other thoughts and initiatives that we have going on here at Agro-Innovations. So look out for that. This episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast is released under a attribution, share-alike, Creative Commons license. If you'd like to learn more about that, then you can visit creativecommons.org. 
and a link to the license is also posted on the our website at agroinnovations.com slash podcast. Also on that website, you can find a link to the LISA website where you can subscribe to the magazine that Frank Van Schoebrook was talking about in this podcast episode. And I encourage you to do so, especially if you are interested in issues of sustainable agriculture or even if you're just a, a backyard gardener who listens to this podcast you may very well find some of the technologies and practices that are being applied by small-scale farmers in the third world are applicable and useful to your situation. So go check that out, and you will be, I'm sure, getting great information and also supporting a good cause. So that is about all I have for you for this episode. Uh, As always, thanks for joining us, and I will see you next week. Until then, saludos. Saludos.